Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in .net. I'm Sean Claybo, your host, and with me today, another co-host, Mark Miller. It's this guy. I made it again. <laughs> You're looking good today, Mark. That, that's how I stay on the show, man. It's, <laughs> it's, it's really just all about quaffing right in Woo! here. Awesome. So I, I think you're familiar with our guest today. That's right. I know Dustin. Whoops, he's over there. I know <laughs> Dustin from, I want to say, I was just calculating, I think about 25, 26 years ago. Um, he was uh, back before <laughs> I w- went over to .NET, I was uh, created CodeRush for Delphi. And I remember at one point I put a, a screenshot out there, uh, you know, for the customers to see. And there was a, kind of an Easter egg in the screenshot and Dustin spotted it and found it. and that explain that's the start of our journey essentially right <laughs> his, his ability to spot an easter egg and, and he was like does this mean this and i'm like that guy's thinking all right well let's introduce our guest uh, let's welcome dustin campbell hey dustin hello yeah so hey. i worked for mark actually many many years ago because i spotted that easter egg which started <laughs> me on a career path through dev express where I learned C-sharp and we worked on Code Rush for Visual Studio and refactoring tools until finally I, 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 I did move on and I went to Microsoft. I've been there for the last 15 years working on uh, C-sharp uh, and uh, C-sharp tooling. I'm a .NET architect at the, on .NET tooling specifically at uh, um, Visual Studio stuff. So it kind of reminds me of, of some companies, they, out, they put out these little online puzzles that if you can solve it, then they want to, they want to hear from you to possibly hire you. Was that what you were doing there, Mark? Um, a l- I guess a little <laughs> bit. It wasn't that I was like thinking, "Oh, I want to go hire people," but uh, but definitely I was like, you know, I'll, I'll throw something out there and see what people see, see if people see it or not. And like one or two or three people spotted it, that sort of thing. They they got a sense of what the implication could mean, and um, and it, because the screenshot was to show something else, and so yeah, that's uh, that's that was kind of the first you know, moment of brilliance that I, that I saw from Dustin. It was like, awesome. That's, that's great that you say that now. At the time, I believe you said, we're hiring you to keep you quiet. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably true. <laughs> You've signed things that now you can't talk about. So, It also reminds me of the very first Easter egg. Do you remember what that is? No, wait. I don't Want know. an adventure? Yep. You've seen that movie, right, Mark? Wait, what movie? There's a book, Ready Player One. It was about uh, oh, Ready Player first, One. First, yeah, the first Easter egg was the um, one of the game developers on Adventure by Atari, Will Robinette, who right. hid his name in the game that you could find if you did a ridiculous number of things uh, to find. But um, it was very clever at the time because they would not they would not give credits to the game developers. My understanding, so he snuck his into the game. Nice, I guess. Nice, yeah. <laughs> I remember a long time ago, a long time ago, I was working for a translation company and I had access to the screenshots that were going to be used for Hewlett Packard software to install the printer drivers and things like that, the images. And that needed to be whatever translated. And I was like thinking, I could watermark my name in these. And and then no one would know until later, at which point that would be exciting. But I didn't. Everybody calm down. It's okay. I didn't do it. But I was thinking about it. Besides, look at me. I'm bringing the Easter egg right here, guys. It's like, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. 
It's a bearded yep. egg. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Dustin, how did you initially get into development and into .NET? Um, I got in uh, to development by accident. Um, I, I mean, I kind of been. I was a coder most of my life as a kid, right? I had you know early Commodores and everything growing up in the in the in the early '80s and late '70s, and so I had you know, a lifetime of programming, especially in basic. Um, and then I got a degree in jazz guitar performance, like you do when you're thinking about programming. Um, and so, which is why it's kind of by accident. I was going deeply into music. Um, and then, I don't know, programming at some point when I was doing my uh, graduate work, actually, in jazz, um, I was doing big band arranging as a, as a master's degree. And uh I kind of got more interested in coding, um, and it kind of took over. Um, I discovered Delphi uh, back around the Delphi 6, Delphi 5, Delphi 6 days, um, and then met Mark at uh, uh, the worst-named conference, one of the worst-named conferences of all time, the Borland Conference, known as Borcon. Um, just terrible, terrible name, but it, there I met folks like Mark and, uh, and kind of got a little more interested in I guess into the into the broader ecosystem of, of what was happening. Got to know Mark, uh, and then um, you know I wasn't quite looking at C sharp. I thought I was gonna look at C sharp someday. This is you know like really really early, and I got this call out of the blue from from Mark after I'd sent that you know email describing I you know I know what you're doing. Um, after that Easter, egg. I, I know what you did last summer. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I said I know what you're doing, and uh, um, I have this memory of being very, very passive aggressive and conversational about it. And it was very, but um, after that, uh, Mark's like he calls out of the blue. He's like, "Hey, Dustin, it's Mark Miller. You've been working on C sharp." I'm like, "Of course I have." Um, and uh, and so that he's like, "Well, I need you out here right now working on this thing. I got the secret project. I need you on." Okay, okay, okay. So. Um, we, we square all that away, and then I spent the next weekend uh, reading from cover to cover Jeffrey Richter's Applied .NET Framework Programming, right? I think that became like C-sharp, like CLR via C-sharp or something like that. It was like kind of the, one of the seminal foundational works. I read it cover to cover that weekend and learned C-sharp. So uh, that's kind of how I got into it. And I, you know, working on a, on a, working on a developer tool like Code Rush, um, which, you know, is like, you know, the, you're you're deep in the language all the time, and that just really interested me. Really getting into language tooling and what it means to be, you know, uh, you know, providing help for the user. It has all of that that sort of, um, you know, that sort of tool tool and that sort of kind of the way you think about that it has all of the kind of elements of compiler authoring that I really enjoy. Where, but but compiler authoring is very very rigorous, and this sort of tooling is very very a little looser. It takes it's like take that and couple it with heuristics, and you know and like thinking outside the box to do even more interesting mind blowing things, and that that really got me kind of, I was hooked uh, for for life I guess it seems that way, um, so that and then uh, yeah, so that got me into it. So now you work on C sharp on a daily basis. Oh yeah. Yeah, not I just started, writing it, but actually working. No, on it. I, I, uh, I was part of um, when I joined Microsoft. I was already a C sharp MVP. Um, I was, I was interviewing for an F sharp job. They were just bringing in F sharp into the product out of Microsoft Research. So this is back at Visual Studio 2010 days. Um, I joined Microsoft in 2008. So, um, and then 
when I got hired, I wound up being the Visual Basic uh, program manager for the uh, Visual Basic IDE for that release. And uh, so I was like, yeah, C-sharp, F-sharp, BB. It was kind of multi-language. Um, and then at the end of Visual Studio 2010, they rebooted this effort that was that was actually going on when I joined Microsoft. It was this whole idea of, you know, they wanted to have some deeper language model exposes an API from Visual Basic and C Sharp. And it was the, the project that was happening was was deeply um, troubled uh, when I joined. And I could tell when I joined that it wasn't going to succeed. It was, they call it the managed port. And it was like, take the C++ code bases from C Sharp and VB and just port them blindly to C Sharp and VB. And then, you know, get it to work. And, and then if it wow. works, now let's refactor it into something nice. I'm like, this is a terrible idea, guys. Wow, uh, this is going to take you forever, and you're probably never going to get it nice. But you, I was just—do you have, do you have was, test cases that you could run against it, or you'd have to port the test well, that, cases? That's the thing. Well. You'd have to do it. Well, I mean, you, maybe, uh, but they didn't really have a lot of tests to begin with. Uh, yeah, they they had tests, but not a ton. That was one of the aspects of the project. Is like, well, we don't really have any confidence in this thing. I remember the first person who brought over some stuff. It was like, yeah, it's 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 wrong. It doesn't work right. It's really, it's really, it was really, really hard. So, so they rebooted that project um, right at the end of Visual Studio 2010. Anders got involved and kind of said, "Let's, we need. If I were doing this, I would do it this way." And ultimately, after a whole bunch of decision making, they started the Roslyn project, and I was um, kind of running from the program management side, um, but also as an engineer, I was working on, um, you know, kind of rebuilding C Sharp and BB, and I did that for five years. Um, so, so, so yes, I get to do a lot more than just write in C sharp. I've you know built major like parts of uh, of, of Roslyn, especially at the IDE layers. Very cool. What is, what is your like your favorite maybe contribution to like development culture? What would you say the thing is maybe that you're most excited about, or the thing that you like the most that you hold on to, or when I go back on? Yeah. Okay, this one's super silly and super trivial. Um, and it's one of the first things I, I decided upon at Microsoft. And it was that we had, um, there was a series of bugs. Do you remember like Microsoft Connect? You'd all, everybody file customer bugs there. And there were yeah. like tons of these bugs that would come in. I think it's called developer feedback now, right? It's the next iteration of this. But, and we PMs had to go deal with all this feedback and kind of be the first you know, line of defense of like talk to the customers, find out what's going on, and then pass it off to engineering if we found anything. You know, significant. Well, this bug kept coming up for years, and it was just like, "Hey, um, IntelliSense keeps completing this at, uh, thread static attribute like randomly for me," and it was really annoying. And it turned out, after investigation, uh, we had found that the reason it was doing that was because when you wanted to, it, generics were relatively new. This is now, you know, just after two thousand and eight, so we just introduced C sharp three. It only been a few years. But when people wanted to write a method that returned a generic type like T, IntelliSense didn't know what T was yet because you were going to define it on the, on the, after the method name. So you write public space T, thread static attribute comes in because right. there is no T. Um, so the thing I'm most proud of, which again, it's really simple. It's super simple. Um, it's the like, we just put T in the list now just in case you're in that spot. And that's the kind of heuristics I mean. It's like, well, it's not technically correct. IntelliSense usually declares about, cares about things that are declared. 
right? That have been, that are somewhere, and we know that they know that they exist. This was just a spot where it's like, heuristically, you might want to put T here. So we, we just put it in the list. And then I got an email from um, uh, uh, Eric Meyer, who worked on, you know, research stuff and worked on crazy C-sharp things for a long time when he was at Microsoft. And he said, you know, this is ridiculous. Why are you putting T in the list? Why not U and V and all that sort of thing, right? Like, what about all the letters? I could do generics for everything. And I was like, well, but the framework design guidelines state that when you have a single character generic type parameter, that should be T. And if you have more than one type parameter, they should start with, they should be identifiers and start with a capital T. So if you're doing that, you're breaking framework design guidelines, and I kind of don't care. That was... <laughs> It's kind of a weird story. It's a super so, small thing, but it was like this thing of like, okay, how do we get this right so it's not showing up everywhere? We want it to show up only in these specific places, but and and we're just kind of guessing. We're just trying to make it so that people stop following this bug and we stopped hearing about it, and people were much happier. Nice. It's just small. I'm sorry. Yeah, if it's if you're probably looking for like, what is the hugest thing? I mean, I'm very proud of the WinForms designer going on to .NET Core. That was a piece I also worked on. Um, and, uh, but that, you know, that's, uh, T in the list, uh, is wins as far as like an example of that sort of compiler IDE heuristics kind of mashing up. Mark, do you have anything to say about the WinForms designer? Yes. Well, actually, yeah, I do. Okay, fine. I was going to save this for later, but because I didn't want to put dust under pressure at the beginning of the show, but, uh, uh, but I am. I spent some time, I'll give you the context of what I was working on. So I basically de designed Idea Spike. I wanted to create a, uh, essentially a holding your hand tutorial through creating anything in Visual Studio. Um, and to do that, one of the, one of the blocking places I found was, uh, well, anything that's done using older technology. So anything built in Visual Studio uh, that's still using WinForms technology like the toolbox, uh, was um, uh, was a blocking space for me. Anything that's using WPF, I could get into. So, for example, if I have a property grid built with WPF, I can do things like put an arrow up that points to the property and say, change it to this value. And then later when you change it to that value, we know, and then we take you to the next step. Um, ultimately, that didn't see the light of day because of you know just ultimately quality issues I couldn't quite get. I'm, I was deeply hacking inside of Visual Studio to make this work. My, I guess what I'm, uh, so the, the reason I reveal the context is because I think it's somewhat of a compelling, maybe not a solution, but a compelling problem space. The problem space is how do I get somebody up to speed with Visual Studio fast? How do I get them feeling like they're, they're moving through and, and not only executing and, and, and having power, right? Executing power and getting things done, but retaining as well, right? That's the problem space. And I would argue that that is compelling to Microsoft as well as the whole community, the whole developer community. So my push, the pressure message I want to send is why not make it really easy to do this across all the designers, because those were one of my troubling places, as well as anything done in the old technology. So I, I get that maybe you're never going to rewrite the toolbox. Nobody wants to touch that. But what if you made it so that I could tell which one was selected, right? Or I could, you know, that sort of thing. So 
that's all that's all my push. I don't want to get I don't want to get mean. I don't want to I don't want to put us under pressure right now, but I mean it. it seemed like you wanted something grand, but then you just asked for a new API on the toolbox and you'd be happy. Um what is it well, you want? Well it's across <laughs> the board. No, it's across the board. I mean in order to make this work for for the property inspectors, property inspectors work in an inconsistent manner as well, I discovered. So some of them, and, and even within the same, like, for example, in XAML, you might have something that fires an event when something changes and something else that doesn't fire an event until later in terms of change, that sort of thing. One, one of the other pieces I discovered. So there was inconsistency all over the place. And I, what, I was, what I was longing for in this quest was a consistency across the board. And I'm not saying that what I was working on was the ideal solution, but I like the idea of making it oh possible for people to create uh, tooling to help other developers get up to speed and learn anything to learn anything that sort of I thing. See. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to I wanted to rec- what I was trying to build was something that allowed me to record the steps. So I could say, here's I'm going to build my application, and then as I build it, I've recorded the steps, and I can send those to anybody, and then now they can follow my steps and recreate what I did, but do it in a guided way. Mm-hmm. Or do it in a in a way that they would just watch. If they just want to watch, you could just hit enter every time, and it would do the step, whatever it was. That's what I was looking for, and I I just found that that the API wasn't there. There, you know, I, the, the it, it just wasn't there to be able to support it's, that. Yeah, the API that's there when we're talking about the toolbox in particular, but it's also like kind of at the heart of fundamental problems with Visual Studio. And I don't want to I don't want to badmouth Visual Studio, but Visual Studio is a complex beast. And its history of being around, I mean, since the 90s, um, is that there's a lot of code there that's that's pretty old and we and lives in kind of multiple worlds. Um, you know, WinForms, for example, is very much this, uh, and, and a lot of the old, like, APIs, like COM-based APIs in Visual Studio are very much bound to the UI thread, right? They're, they are long before we async was in our minds. Um, and they are, you know, everything was synchronized on the UI thread. And this is, was the challenge, for example, with doing the WinForms designer, is because of course that's on it, got its own message pump and UI thread and move. So moving pieces of that out of process while allowing some of the, the pieces in Visual Studio continue to talk to this out of process piece and synchronizing all that and doing things in the right order and firing events at the right times, really hard, right? And so yeah. in the case of the t- toolbox also, there's, I would say that a lot of these were written at a point where it was like, we don't really have a vision for what customers might need exactly. We we have you know kind of some some ideas like of like the big things people are going to need, but but components like the toolbox were written with like a bare bones amount of text tool of of extensibility in mind. The extensibility was what's a designer going to need, right? If somebody's plugging in uh, something in right. Visual Studio kind of into the document well, and they want to be able to deal with t- items coming from the toolbox and how those are being dropped and all that kind of thing, you know, that's where they, they invest it, right? So then the notion of looking outside in on right. something like the toolbox was an afterthought. And it's usually like only the things that happen to get there, get there. So it winds up being a very, I would say, incomplete kind of surface area. No, I totally get that. Yeah. But I guess what I'm saying is maybe the next time, right, or something the like that, time. this this idea, right, this idea of wait a second, let's what is how what's the value of discoverability? How much are we going to be investing on writing tutorials 
right? Tech support, that sort of thing, right? If mm-hmm. I, as a third-party developer, right, if I, my tech support team can create answers to tech support questions effortlessly by just doing the steps and saying, here you go, and it's something that somebody else can actually watch and compile as opposed to watching a video and then having to recreate or something along those lines, which is a little heavier, right? Sending a video is bigger than sending, you know, the instructions. I don't know. I, I just want to plant that seed because I feel like there's a, it is a problem space that engulfs community as well as Microsoft. And it's something that I would love to see more of. And not just on the toolbox, but on all the different designers. I'd love to see across the board, a similar API allows me to know where it is so I can point to it on screen, for example. Mm-hmm. It allows me to know when it's changed, what its default values are for each element in the property grid, for example. And I the mean, same thing with a form designer. I want to know where the controls are. The same thing there. I think ultimately, though, isn't that... Uh, I'm sorry if I'm being naive, but because uh, I, I totally am. Um, isn't that like the accessibility APIs that are there today? Don't those... But yeah, I, I assume they're not enough for you, right? Yeah. I, I think they're not enough. I think that... It, 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 and to be fair, I... Uh, I know of them, but when I when I put in pointed questions out that said, how do I find out, for example, the position of this control? Where is it? I was actually hoping that someone from Microsoft would oh. say accessibility APIs in point. And yeah. nobody, I didn't get it. So Well, and if you're looking at WinForms Designer in any recent release, that might not work because I might have broken it without a product designer anyways, and they're actually working on that at the moment. That particular so we, let's talk about that. WinForms right. out of product designer. Do you uh, want to talk about that? I can talk about that. What would you like to know? What, what is it? What's going on well, there? Okay. So Visual Studio runs on .NET Framework, right? When it runs, it hosts its own CLR instance, and it runs a .NET Framework CLR. Um, and so the WinForms designer and really all the designers until some years ago all ran in process. And this is the problem, Sean, as you were asking for WebForms for .NET 8, um, is that designer experience runs in proc, which means it runs a .NET framework, which means when a, you're in a WinForms designer and a button is created and you see it on the surface area, I mean, we're actually creating the windows, right? We're creating all the windows and creating your form. That's what that initialized component does, right? It, 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 we, we take that initialized component method, we turn it into um, kind of a, a tree of, of, uh, of statements that we then process and produce. So we're not actually, actually running your code. We're not running your constructors. We call the base type. We say, okay, this is my form. It inherits from form. Well, we're going to create form, not your form, because it's not compiled yet. Right, we don't actually have your form to create, so and put all your controls we, on it, and then we call we take that initialized component method, run through it, and put all the controls on it, and so when that happens in Visual Studio on the .NET Framework designer, and for years, that's all .NET Framework buttons, all .NET Framework text boxes. Now, fast forward, and we're porting WinForms into .NET Core three, um, and we want a designer for it, and we also want to make changes to the API. So it could be something as simple as adding properties to, uh, you know, some, to say button. You want to add a new property to it and you want it to show up. Well, WinForms being very early, kind of it, it, um, it suffers, I would say, at least a design time experience from all of the sins that we committed in .NET Framework 1.0, right? Which we're like, I want to, like, and we've been trying to like atone for them ever since. 
where everything runs on the UI thread, everything uses reflection at a crazy deep level, like a lot of reflection um, on the objects themselves, right? So when I click on a button, that button, we reflect over its runtime properties that are there, and that's what show up in the property grid, right? But if if it's out of process, if I got a .NET Core 3.0 button, I want that extra property in there, right? Um, other sins were just activator.create instance. I should be able to just create things, you know, just be able to create objects. However, if these are .NET Core objects and I'm trying to create them inside of a .NET Framework CLR, crazy things might happen, right? Bad things can happen. We we looked at a, a lot of potential crazy ideas for that, and ultimately we followed what WPF XAML had done, which was take their designer out of process. However, WPF has this, um, while, while it's not exactly async, right? It, it, it's, it's got, in the sense of like C-sharp async and task and all of that, it certainly not, you know, tries to do things in an asynchronous event-driven manner, right? WinForms did not. So we would push it out of process. So what we did was we would read that initialized component method, just like we did before, serialize the code DOM, that object tree of, of the code in your initialized component over to the other process, which is now running on .NET Core 3, where we could now create the real form. And this is the part that became crazy complicated, was then we would take the window handle from that other process and we would parent it inside of Visual Studio. And so we had cross-process kind of parenting of forms. Oh. This is something actually that Windows supports, but Raymond Chen's blog post on the topic refers to it as juggling chainsaws. Sure. Um, yeah. So because you have two UI threads and you're doing things like, and, and Windows will deadlock you. It'll do things like, okay, I'm in Visual Studio here and I call over to this other process and I need to wait for that. And I don't have the ability to be async here. I'm calling from old, ancient, iDesigner host, Visual Studio, .NET Framework APIs that don't, don't know anything about async. So I need to wait for the result to come back. And so we would block over here. And hopefully it'll be very, very, everything was sub-millisecond. So we block over in Visual Studio, and we're blocking the UI thread. Well, then on, on this side, we'd handle it. And in handling it, maybe Windows does something weird, like maybe over here it says, I want to take this tooltip window, and I need to make this topmost window in, in, in Windows. Well, in order to do that, it might it have to, like, Windows might have to send a, hey, like a, a message over oh, to, no. No. yeah, the previous <laughs> topmost window, which might be the tooltip window in Visual Studio, and now you're just deadlocked, right? And so those kinds of problems were just, that was what I did. <laughs> I was trying to to solve some of that those kinds of issues. They just became very, very complicated. And wow. so the actual things that you want to look at, Mark, like for your for your for your uh, um, for for the tool you were describing, like if you want to drill down and actually get down to the runtime control, that's over in another process. Now that's not even you're not it's not even in the same world. You so we have to provide some sort of abstraction on top of that that you can look at. We do have a series of proxy objects and things, but they're not the real things. You can't just call into them with reflection because they don't have the same runtime, you know, surface area that the real things do over in the other process. That was kind of what I did for the WinForms designer, and that's actually opened up a lot of possibility for us. Now that the, now that we have a .NET Core supported WinForms designer that's out of process, this also enables us to do some things that either were broken. 
um, as Visual Studio moved forward or things we've never been able to do at all. So um, one one thing that's kind of a big, I, I, this is not, I'm not on the WinForms team anymore, so I apologize to anybody who's experiencing this. But when we moved Visual Studio to 64-bit, and because the WinForms designer for framework runs in process, it turned out that any of your 32-bit controls that were compiled like truly x86, like COM components of things, they broke um, on your WinForms designer. And uh, because now the, now the designer is running 64-bit. So we've been able to recently, we've been working um, very hard to get it so that when you're running things in a 32-bit uh, framework designer, that that will also use a variant of the out of proc designer so we can load those controls and, and run them properly. It's just this idea of like, you know, the big sin is that Visual Studio was like, it believed that the environment in which it ran was the same development environment that you were going to be targeting. And now with variations of .NET, .NET Core, APIs being like, that's just not, that's just not the reality we live in, right? If we ever were to move Visual Studio onto .NET Core itself on a, on a core CLR, for example, that would require then the entire framework designer to move out of process. It would be the other, the other problem. Um, the other challenge that, that came with moving it out of process were uh, things like modal dialogues that are part and parcel of kind of that old WinForms experience. Again, it's a sin of the past. I know, Mark, you, your, your hatred of modality and speed bumps like that. I, I know you'd much rather see an, an asynchronous kind of, kind of you know, fluid UI, but, uh, but they're there. And so in order to have those function with you know, an out-of-proc experience, you have to have those dialogues in the client Visual Studio process. They have to be there in that modal dialogue loop or things get, go, they get weird. Um, and uh, so that's the kind of things we, we've had to do uh, to make that work. Um, there's a lot of more stuff to do we haven't gotten to. Like, uh, I think the data sources window needs a lot of love, um, for example, to make it work in an out-of-process manner with .NET Core. But there's, yeah, that's that was a, a, a few years of effort on my part with, uh, with some really talented folks over the WinForms teams trying to make that work. C sharp twelve, yeah. What you got? What you got for us on that? Well, I just did a talk at .NET Comp uh, with my uh, my colleague and and friend uh, Mads Torgerson, and we did a What's New in C sharp twelve. Um, there's really so now that we ship like every year, and we get a major version every year. It could be you know the, I would say that the number of marquee features has decreased. Right, um, we can't possibly put out you know, you know things. Lots and lots of big features anymore. There's. It's hard to get to something like generics. You have to do that over multiple releases. Um, for example, I remember there was a feature that you wanted in way back in .NET 1.0 and C Sharp 1.0, which was virtual static methods. Right. We didn't exactly deliver virtual static methods, but we. But over the course of two releases, it was C Sharp. I think it was C Sharp 10 and 11. We were able to finally deliver static abstract methods on interfaces which allow you to have a static on an interface that you can you can implement on any type, yeah. right? And we use it for our generic math library. Nice. Yeah. Um, it's not static, virtual statics, though that's totally possible now. It's just we were like, somebody needs to ask for it. So, you know, you could probably just resurrect that old email you sent um, and, and, and aim for that again if you want to get it. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but for example, so, so it's either things that these big marquee features either take multiple releases or we have fewer. This is one where we have fewer. 
Um, we have a couple of small features, um, some things for like uh, rounding out like minimal web APIs. They they that that scenario really really drove a bunch of features in Lambda expressions in the last release or two. Um, and this I think we put I want to say we put optional arguments uh, on on Lambda. So I don't remember. It was it was a small feature. We didn't discuss it. The big features are uh, primary constructors and wow. um, and uh, uh, collection expressions. Um, what, what's your favorite new feature coming out? In collection expressions by far. Yeah. By country mile. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea that we could have just a simple collection, ex, ex, like just a collection ex, uh, syntax that just works. Uh, <laughs> taking out a whole ton of boilerplate um, is target type. So if I'm passing it to a method that takes a list of int, it just makes a list of int for me, but that it does what it's trying to do in the most efficient way possible, right? Mm -hmm. On .NET 8, you know, it's going to do things like try and, depending on what you're passing it to, it like may try and stack allocate the entire array so as not to, not to put any pressure on the GC later. Like it does a bunch of stuff to try and be as efficient as it possibly can be. Um, and so it's even in certain cases because it also works on down level uh, .NET as well. It also works on framework, you know, not with all the same, you know, types and things, but you know, it, it, it works. And like, there are certain cases where it's just like, it's just better uh, to pass to pass like a, a um, you know, for example, if I wanted to pass array .empty in on .NET framework uh, to a method that took i enumerable, it actually you know, isn't as efficient as it could be. So, um, and it might, in fact, uh, I think on .NET Framework, I believe it will produce a new enumerator. It will allocate a new enumerator every time get enumerator is called. So when you pass it to an I enumerable, well, that's what they're going to do. They're going to call .any on it. So that's going to result in an allocation, right? Every time. Um, and if you pass collection expression, that's going to do something completely different. That's going to be trying to be as efficient as possible. So what we really strive for was ubiquity, like the ability with collection expressions to say, I have a syntax and I can use it with any collection, uh, any, any vector list-like you know, collection. Uh, like, uh, and then we did not get to dictionary expressions, and those will hopefully come in the next release. We have a plan, or at least big ideas. Um, and then, so ubiquity. Um, and we also wanted to get performance out of it and then also brevity, right? We wanted to make it like simple and cheap and easy to create these things, right? Yeah. You know, um, from a, from a, just a typing standpoint. Um, right. Yeah. No, I love it. Like, I love it. Like, it sounds like the important areas are all being considered and, and uh, addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, that would be my favorite. And do you have a uh, do you have a favorite dev tool dev tooling feature that you guys have put out uh, in the last you know it could be a recent one that sort of thing. A favorite dev tooling yeah. feature. Um, you know, honestly, I I I get a lot of mileage out of a lot of the refactorings that we put in. Um, you know, and I love that it's easier now. It's easier to put those in there. You know, I was just talking to my my friend Saras uh, Saras who's been there forever working on this stuff. He sits next to me, and he had written a couple of refactorings for converting 
from a regular constructor into a primary constructor and gave kind mm -hmm. of two variations of that where it's like, oh, here's one where it actually removes all the fields that can be removed because, you know, you can just use those parameters right. or one that says, no, no, leave all the fields because maybe you're in a case where you just want to see all the state at the top of the type. Right. And so we had those two variations and I was like, you know, Cyrus, it's driving me crazy that there isn't a way back, right? That I can't go convert to a regular constructor because the cliff is so big. Right. And I'm like, I've got like, I'm going to add one more parameter and now it just feels too weighty to look at, or I want to add some validation to an argument. And there's just, it's just, it's just too cumbersome now. And now of course it's big and I don't want to take the time to cut, cut and paste and move things around and refactor. Right. So he added it back in or he, I was sorry, he added the, the, the refactoring to do that in a couple of days, like over the weekend. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. Cause now I have a productivity feature. Right. Where I'm like, oh, let me you know what? Actually, I've decided that I want the fields to be left in this. So I go and I say convert to regular regular constructor and then convert back to primary constructor and leaving the fields. I'm like, perfect. That's exactly yeah. what I want. It's awesome. Well, yeah. One of the things I've discovered when you're building a tool to go in one direction, if you add the tool to go in the reverse direction, it gives greater value to the original yeah. tool. Because Absolutely. one of the things you can do is I can go back and forth and just play with that effortlessly. When you know using a, the 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 equivalent effort of a whim, mm -hmm. right, to initiate the effort, you can, to initiate the change, and explore, right, and so it create it gives more value. Do you find? I, I'm just curious. Do you find that your mindset is more on uh, language related solutions or tooling related solutions? Or do you find there's a balance that, like, when you've got a language solution, oh, maybe we need to get it go forward and backwards. We need to consider where where's your mindset as you as you sp spend your time there. It's gotten it's gotten fuzzier, right? Because in in our space, there's not just there's language oriented solutions where like we need to fix this at the language level. This needs a feature, but you know, then there's like things like diagnostics, which have typically been the compiler you know, end of things. Right. But now we have the ability to add diagnostics at other layers as well, um, which is, it kind of gets fuzzy. It's like, is that compilers, that tooling? Um, you know, because you can put diagnostic analyzers in that break your build, right? Um, which is kind of compiler. Um, so it's, things have gotten a little, there's like a little fuzzier area there um, where we do play with. Sometimes we decide, hey, we're going to, you know, we could have done, um, if it, if, if we just put the like, you know, for nullable reference types in C sharp eight, if we had just put the syntax to be able to put a question mark after a re uh, reference type, if we had just simply said, you know what, don't make that an error anymore. The syntax was legal, right? Just don't make it an error because we already allowed in question mark, right? So um, just don't make it an mm -hmm. error. And then let's do nullable as an analyzer outside of the compiler using the Roslyn API. It would have been possible. But it wouldn't have been great, right? Because we wouldn't have been able to then say, well, now we need to augment the Roslyn API. We need the compiler. We want it to be faster. We want to do it while the compiler is doing flow analysis for things like definite assignment and, and things like that. When, as, we're, as we're doing our flow analysis, we want to do the nullability analysis as well. So it would have been less efficient. Um, and it would have been, um, we wouldn't have been able to expose in the Roslyn API like we ultimately did. So, you know, sometimes there's a decision like that as well. Like we need to push it into the language and push it into the compiler because we're going to 
you know the even even the tooling needs that right. um a, a really great example of of us doing that really early on um was around using directives and the remove unused using directives feature that's actually crazy hard um you'd think it's easy but when you get down to things like generic methods when the t's are inferred by some lambda expression it's like it's actually very hard to tell you'd have to do a lot of analysis bind the entire file look at every identifier in the file to determine that whether something was truly used you couldn't just look at the names of things you'd have to bind it and do all the inference and, and run all the analysis uh, to determine whether whether it was used so but the compiler does that pretty easily it can it can check that as it's going and say yep let me mark that as used and so we push that analysis into the compiler for that particular ID, just for tooling. Like a compiler doesn't need it, um, right. not necessarily, right? But but we decided that, that was something. But it could do it efficiently, yeah. and then you could get access to it from and the tooling. From the tooling, and then there, yeah. like, and then there's this question you're kind of asking, which is like about the language itself. Um, I don't know that there's. I mean, there there are things where it's like, okay, yes, we could make a language feature around that, and that would give people you know, productivity, and that, that's important, right? Like collection expressions, we could have done differently or, or, but but I think more with language, we think about expressiveness, right? More than we think about like, do I feel more, I mean, feeling more productive is good, but really it's like, can I express myself in the way that I want to express myself? Right. And that's when we get into, okay, well, what, what belongs in the language um, versus belongs in the compiler versus belongs in the IDE tooling layer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's, it, it's, it's, it can be fuzzy. <laughs> it can be really fuzzy. Yeah. I, but I, I just got to imagine like the conversations where you've got tension in those three areas, mm-hmm. that's gotta be kind of exciting, right? Especially if you realize we found the right solution, the right balance for compelling reasons. Right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and there's, a, there's good examples of, of that tension today, um, in the feature source generators. Right, uh, the one that lets you generate source code on the side. We use it to great effect in the in the .NET runtime to generate C# sharp code for you for like regex expression, you know that kind of thing. Um, there's tons of them running, and there's a language component to it because the language might have might have I mean some features and some rules about how that works. We we haven't done a lot of them yet. Um, but we've talked about it. Like there was, there was originally when we first did it, there was a, originally a feature called. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called, but it was like, I want to be able to replace. I wanted to have something like a, where I do a base call, something like that. But instead of a base, it was actually calling over to the generated code, like actually, or from the generated code into my original code. So what, I think we call it replace and original, where you could like replace an implementation. Um, in the generated code, I could replace the replace an implementation of something in the original code, but then I had like kind of almost like a base call where I could call back to the original code. I, I call it like overriding on the side kind of thing. We, we so in those cases, we I don't think we we didn't actually end up implementing that, but it was in the original prototype. And where we're where we're talking about language features, source generators is ultimately a compiler feature. However, it has major IDE ramifications. You know, if there's generated code happening all the time we need to figure out the right cadence on which to do that efficiently we need to make sure that like because that if it defines any new symbols that they would show up in intellisense if you had like you know if you're doing like the i notify property change source generator it's generating a little 
property change method. That doesn't exist in your code, but we need to make it show up um, in IntelliSense. There's a lot of things like that that where just like, and there's a bunch of tension uh, in that feature in particular today that uh, I have been looking at with a bunch of other folks about like, how do we get this to be a lot more efficient? Because the, the .NET runtime, the SDK keeps adding new source generators for really great reasons. And the scenarios are really, really good, but we're like, but it keeps making the IDE struggle from performance. Um, and we're trying to figure out how to do those things more efficiently. And then there's another feature coming in uh, that's an experimental feature in C-sharp 12 called interceptors, which kind of lets you replace call sites. So I've got a call in my original code to some method, and maybe we want to generate a new call site that this method that the original code would call instead that's more efficient, right? Which some of the, there's, there's all sorts of scenarios for this. You can imagine a scenario for like, you know, faster reflection and things like that, right? And, uh, but that has a language component in the sense that, well, how does, how does the user, how does this happen, right? And what are the rules from a language perspective? How do they happen? Um, and then a compiler perspective, and then a huge IDE efficiency concern. And so it winds up being, well, there winds up being tension across all three areas. Um, and it's not like checks and balances, like we're just all <laughs> tense. <laughs> you know? um, so as an example. Yeah. So you you mentioned primary constructors, you know, yeah. what are those? You know, I so, think a good thing, but uh, so tell us we, about it. we actually have them already in C sharp, but we've, you know, thrown so many features at you the last few years, you would be forgiven for missing them. Um, but we had a, you know, when we introduced uh, records in C sharp uh, nine, um, I think it was. Uh, there were two kind of forms of those. There were what we call positional records, which had a primary constructor. They just like it was just like you know public record class name, and then a parameter list of you know whatever. Okay, and and those whatevers like maybe this is a person. It's got a first name, last name, string, first name, string, last name, and in a record, those define a set of public uh, init-only properties um, that get uh, generated along with it. So it's a real nice kind of succinct syntax for creating these data classes. And because they were in a primary constructor form, there we called them positional because that meant we knew the order. So the order that mattered for things like equality, um, you know, and for things like um, deconstruction, if I wanted to deconstruct those out, like a like with a tuple kind of var, first name, last name equals, you know, and then pass a record in there. And I want to deconstruct that out. We knew the order of the things going in, so they were the same order coming out. Um, we took that primary constructor syntax and we said, you know what, let's just take the record off of there and let's make them available for classes and structs. This is a feature that F-sharps had since its inception. Um, TypeScript has, you know, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a convenience and I find it super, really super useful when I'm, you know, I've got simple types because what it does, those, those, that primary constructor syntax, instead of generating new public properties, it doesn't, it doesn't change your surface area. It, they're just parameters into the main constructor of the type, right? That has no body essentially. However, I can take those parameters and I can capture them. Like we would say, if I were capturing a local into a Lambda body. I can capture them inside of other methods or properties within the class and use them. And if you do that, we will automatically stash them somewhere. You know, and you know, it's, it's easy to think of us creating a field for it, but the idea is that like we're just we're 
you've used that parameter. We're capturing it into a place for you. It gets assigned. Um, and we've kind of created this nice, I kind of, it's, it's a little bit leaky, but an abstraction around saying, well, these are just parameters coming in and you can just use them throughout your class. That's the idea of a, of a primary constructor. And it cleans up code. Yeah, I love it. You know, super small types just really, really cleans it up nicely. Um, I, I give you an example in the Razor code base that I've been working in a lot lately, the Razor tooling code base. There's a ton of there's a ton of unit test classes, and they all inherit from test base, and they all have a public constructor that takes in you know this is X unit we're all using in this in this in this repo, and so they all take an I test output and pass it down to the base class so that they can it can take that and store it in some some logger interface. Uh, to be used and passed into various objects that it creates from the Razor tooling layer. So we can capture that logging output, right? Well, this turns all of those classes into like being like five lines shorter, you know, because the public constructor goes away. There's a primary constructor that takes the I test output and then and it says colon test base and it passes the test input test output right there when you at, uh, in the in the declaration of the class and there's no constructor at all, or at least no you know, regular constructor with a body. And it's just like, oh, that's super clean. And every single one of those does that. Um, I love that. I love that kind of just like, yeah, let's clean up some boilerplate. Cool. Um, it does have some weirdness with structs. But then again, record structs were weird already. Um, <laughs> where record structs, if you, if you declare a record struct with a primary constructor that creates properties, those are actually mutable get set properties. They're not read-only at all. Because we have a read-only keyword for struct, so if you make a read-only record struct, it produces public get init-only properties. So functionally, um, read-only properties that can only be set at initialization time. But they're mutable, right, on the, on the regular structs. So when we did primary constructors for non-record structs, it's the same thing. So when you create a... Um, you know, a a uh, a primary constructor. You pass in uh, the parameters for a regular struct. They become public, or not public. They become, but they become private fields that are mutable and can be written to as well. But if it's a read-only struct, it produces read-only fields. Um, so there's some weirdness. Um, I think it's I think it's fairly like regular and normal, but it's 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 there's some some interesting little bumps in that area. Not sure you guys care about that as much, though. But thanks for letting Good. me carry on. <laughs> You're welcome, Justin. <laughs> I, have a, I have a burning question I've been holding back because I wanted to let you carry on. But no, I, I, uh, it's about primary constructors. When I initialize using those parameters and pass it in, after it's done there, does it call like the parameterless constructor if it's in there and declared? Do I automatically essentially get a like a this kind of call there? Or no. if I so if I wanted any startup initialization, I would have to do something very specific right. for that. Right, because okay. we never did call that parameterless constructor by default uh, uh, before. Right. Either. Yeah. So um, so it doesn't change those semantics at all. We are talking about maybe there's a way we can do something here. We've looked at ideas for how to just put a body in there, do something more. Um, you know, it kind of goes into two camps. Like we could give you a body to do anything in, which might be nice on the one hand. On the other hand, it kind of seems like we well, might as well make a constructor, right? The syntax is there, you know, at that point. True. But um, but then we're also trying to look at what are the things people mostly want to do, right? What what are the, the like? Could we 
add features that make it easier to do argument validation or whatever, right? Like, would that would that solve like the ninety percent case um, where you don't really care about a regular constructor anymore? Uh, I'll be honest with primary constructors. While I like them, uh, they tend to horizontally sprawl a lot right. on my screen, and I am struggling still to look at them when they've started to like. You know, you know, put them on, put the parameters in separate lines, and oh, where's the base type go? And I'm still not sure I love how they look, um, or I've gotten quite used to them. But uh, I felt that way with expression bodied members at first too. I sh I'm sure I'll get used to it. I think they look great with two parameters. Oh, for sure. One, two, or three. Yeah. It's fine. Yep, yeah, for sure. Um, and like I said, I go back and forth as to whether I will put fields in there. Is, you know, because that's the way you, if you don't like the capture, like, because they're parameters, right? So when you create, if they capture them in a regular C-sharp class, they create fields that are not read-only. They are just regular fields. Um, and because you could always assign to parameters, so we wanted to allow that behavior. If I assign to it, kind of want to keep that, that sort of mutable behavior. Um, so if you want read-only, right now the thing you do is you declare fields for it. And that at that point, you can decide, well, I'm no longer ever going to call this, touch this parameter. And we actually introduced some tooling to make it both at the compiler layer and at the uh, at the IDE layer to help with a problem where you might get into with double capture. So this is where I've got a field I've or a property, and I've already initialized that field or property with this thing. And then I use the parameter later, which causes us to capture it now. And so you wind up with two fields uh, potentially storing the same the same value. Um, so the problem is that, that like that's a you know that that that's something we don't think people intend to do. Um, and so we've added warnings at the compiler level. So you'll get a warning if you try and use a parameter after you've assigned it to a field. Um, and uh, in the IDE, if you've already assigned it to a field, we will no longer show the parameter in IntelliSense. Because the field's there, right? And so, um, yeah. So just to just to keep you from doing it, it's still legal, but you know you're working right. against the, the system to do it. Right. You can now you can now alias any type. Is that right? You could always alias any type. Well, but well, okay, that's not true. You, so yes, uh, what we what we did was we said let's let's let the right side. It always had to be a fully qualified type. Right, and if it was a generic, it always had to be a fully qualified. Even in the even in the type errors, if you wanted to make a list, uh, if you wanted to make using int list equals, you would have to say system dot collections dot generic dot list angle bracket system dot int thirty two close angle bracket semicolon, and then you would hate your life. Right, <laughs> I was like, that saved me nothing. Probably the net character loss was worse. Right, um, so yeah, so now you can say int. <laughs> you know, and it was just because that was we very narrowly defined the sorts of names syntax that could appear on the right, and we now allow things like predefined type keywords. We allow which, and we allow tuple syntax, which is huge. You could always do tuples. You could say system dot value tuple, and then angles, and then say system dot int thirty two system dot string, which is fine, but you couldn't put names on them because those are in encoded in attributes, right? So. It wound up like now you can put the parens, you can put the the full, you know you can do all of that, and it actually it makes them much more like reasonable. You can do pointer types, if you, which is why I I I waffled when I said you could you could always do all the types. Uh, no, no, there was a lot of pointer types you couldn't do it with. Um, 
but uh yeah that that um it's kind of a nice little feature but it's more like it's kind of like a bug fix too it's like yay good job c sharp team it only took you 11 11 versions not to be just draconian as can be (laughs) (laughs) so So how does any of this or all of this help me as one of the last web forms people out there get to net core Oh my gosh, Sean, I don't work on ASP.net. I did take a look at the web forms designer and talked about moving it out of process. Um, I took a look at it. it, it it's, it's hard. Um, you know, so, so web forms is in a lot of ways worse than WinForms in that it has some other sins involved. Um, sure, yeah. And one of those sins involves a little product um, at Microsoft called front page. Um, and uh, yeah, you didn't know I was going to say that, right? And no. so, so some of that code, some of that original kind of like rendering code, which used like an old IE engine and all that, some of that code still runs in the web forms that it comes from. And it came, it came by way of Expression Web, if you remember that product, yeah. which was oh, yeah. actually a really cool WYSIWYG, you yeah. know, web tool at the time, um, competing with Dreamweaver, I think, Macromedia's Dreamweaver back then. Homesite, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that was um, like that code still exists. And in fact, when they moved to 64 bit, it turns out that a bunch of that code was x86 assembly and had to be rewritten um, (laughs) uh, to be 64 bit. And so that was like, I guess somebody wrote it, uh, somebody ported it. That's the kind of thing like the web forms designer look when people look at it, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, this is, this is, it kind of goes back to what I was saying very early on about, about Visual Studio and it's kind of its, it's com roots being locked into really wanting to be on the UI thread, not even just, you know, the infrastructure, the underpinnings of it wanting to be on the UI thread, but even APIs just do not lend themselves to asynchrony at all. Um, Mark might, I'll give you an example of that. Mark might be uh, familiar with a uh, an API in Visual Studio, a com API called IVS Hierarchy. If you've seen that around, but it, it's the idea is it's like it's like an abstraction, like a tree abstraction, right? And so it's a common interface that can be you know a tree, and it can you can ask about parents and children and siblings of those children. Give me the next child and, and all that. But the problem is is that it, it demands to be called on a single single thread from an API perspective. You're like, okay, now I have this a, a handle to this node. Now give me the child of that node. Right, and if in an asynchronous world, all of that can just go out, out, out to lunch. Like you need a different API to right. do those sorts of things. So, thing, and and it also has events that fire and things. Then Visual Studio expect those events to be fired on the UI thread, and so we have we have a whole bunch of things like that 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 really kind of hamstring. I would say like some big development. Someday we might we might be able to do something with that, but it really makes it hard to move certain areas of the product forward. WinForms or WebForms in particular has this old, you know, IE engine and this old front page stuff, kind of front page derived stuff from way back when. Um, and it's 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 a mess. It can be it's the the code itself, and this is a this is the thing that frustrates me. I've looked at the code for WebForms and that, that whole project, it's not bad at all. It's like, oh, this is really well written C sharp. It looks good, right? The managed code looks really, really good. It's everything that it's using is like this all this old nightmare code. Um and so I did look at pushing it out of process. It was totally possible, but not like timely. Um, and <laughs> yeah, it also, 
it, it just becomes, you know, it's also a thing of like, is that the web development we want to be doing on .NET Core too, right? I mean, like it's, it's right. kind of a different universe now. Yeah. No, um, yeah, my very first project in .NET 1.0 was writing a CMS so that our users did not have to use front page. <laughs> Get all that weird front page, you know, HTML, just it would spit into there, all that weird stuff. All that template exactly. stuff is weird. Yeah. I was not at Microsoft at that time. I cannot <laughs> vouch for any of it. I used it, and then I moved very sanely over to Macromedia Streamweaver at the time. Before it was yeah. I wonder if the person Adobe. who actually came up with that syntax that was spitting out actually still admits it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, it's dealing with some of our old stuff is always a problem. I, when I joined uh, the one fo- person who's is still a great friend and he worked on C Sharp for years. I'm sorry, itch. Um, he was working on as a as, as just as a major thing, kind of in Visual Studio 2010 timeframe that we didn't talk about. He was working on bringing the 64-bit integer to Visual Basic for applications to VBA because mm-hmm. back then. They were just about to deliver Office 64-bit. They were trying to deliver that, right? In, in I think, Office 2010, um, the 64-bit versions. And the problem was, was there were that, again, because VBA just ran there, and you just had integers, and they couldn't just make them 64-bit integers because the overflow bugs and all these bankers' scripts and, you know, everywhere would just explode. Um, and so we had to, you know, uh, we had to put a new type in vba because we didn't have you know because of sins of the past right it just ran in process and we didn't know what to do with it so it's it's uh i don't know it always keeps 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 the paychecks coming (laughs) well Dustin, i think we could probably go on for another hour two hours or more i think we're gonna have to have you back on the show sometime sure talk about some more yeah i'll be nice i'm gonna be nice that next show i promise not not regular Mark. You're gonna have good Mark then. Oh, that's how you keep us on our toes. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I think we'll uh, move on to picks. And uh, Mark, do you want to let us know what your pick is for this week? Yeah, my pick is the uh, Roborock S7 Ultra Ultra Robot Vacuum and Mop Combo. Um, we recently got this thing here in our apartment in uh, Valencia, Spain. And, uh, you know, I didn't, usually I'm the tech guy, but this thing was brought in by my wife, Karen. And uh, <laughs> I'm like, cool. Uh, the box opens up and she sends my son over to set it all up. <clears throat> I'm like, cool. Uh, next thing I know, I got this little thing going around the house and they're calling her Nora. She, they've, they've anthropomorphized the robot. And uh, and uh, Nora goes around our house sweeping and mopping, and uh, and and also vacuuming the like carpets and you know where there's carpets. Um, and so far so good. Uh, Nora will announce you know going back to clean the mop or something like that, and you know, Nora will go back. Nora runs these kind of thin lines where so the the mopping width is about this long. So. She'll go down one hallway, right, long hallway, then come back right next to it, you know, come right back up there uh, and, and run right past it. And uh, so far, so so good. 
you know, puts takes the dirty water back, puts it in one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the uh, the dirty water bin and gets clean water and continues along doing her job. That's it. All right, cool. Um, so my pick this week is the Data Color Spider X2 Ultra Color Calibrator. So I used to ta- do a lot of video production. And then I also had a side business of doing photography, retouching, and things like that for real estate. So I had a guy that used to li- live in New York City in Manhattan that used to do all these big-time photo shoots of condos and apartments in New York City, whatever, and he would send me the pictures, and I would edit them and make them look pretty and all that kind of stuff and send them back to him. So I've done a few kind of well-known stars, celebrities, apartments out of New York City. So that's kind of one of my little fun claim to fames here. but. One thing that's important with this is having the correct color and brightness and everything on your monitors. So I'm I'm pretty big into calibrating all my monitors so that they all look good. Even though I am colorblind, red, green, colorblind, I can still do that kind of stuff just by looking at hovering over the colors and looking at the values that it shows me in like Photoshop and so on and nice. so forth. Cool. Nice. So yeah, if you want to calibrate your monitors, check so- out. Do you need a you do you need some sort of optical like input like a camera aimed at your monitors to make this work? Uh, this is kind of a little uh, kind of a little puck device. Yeah, I'm looking you, at it now. That you you hook into your USB and then it has a, a photo sensor on it. I see it. To, yeah, uh, to I love it. Figure out cuz first it first it adjusts the brightness cuz it can't evaluate colors unless it has the uh, consistent brightness that it knows about that it can reference. And it actually will also sense, sense your room brightness to accommodate for that as well. And then it'll run through this big color calibration, flashing different red, green, blue type colors or whatever on your screen to figure out what to do. And then it assigns a profile to your windows to adjust for that to make it look right. Nice. So, so there's no hardware adjustment anywhere. Is that right? Right. That's pretty impressive. I didn't right. know Windows it's could all do done that. Through, through Windows, yep. That's impressive. Probably a Mac version of well. Yeah. I'm like, the only thing I'm looking at is 279. I'm like, that's a lot for my set one-time use of setup, right? Or do you use it frequently? Well, I, I use it about every three or four months because the monitors will drift after a while. I see. But there there yeah. are uh, lesser models. So if you don't need all the features that the, the uh, X2 Ultra gets, they have uh, lower models that are, Start out at about 130, 130 US. Now I got it. I can only buy things with Ultra in their name, as you can see from my <laughs> robot. Apparently, yeah, that's cool. All right, I'm looking at it. All right, Dustin, what do you want to let our listeners know about? All right, so at the risk of it being kind of a flex, um, because you did tell me I was doing this right beforehand, um, and I've, I've had an, I have a number of candidates, but what I'd like to mention is, um, if you haven't had talked about here before, is the Commander X16, right, which is a new retro computer that was made by um, kind of some influential folks in kind of the Commodore 64, Commodore, uh, Commodore retro gaming space. And they decided they wanted to design a computer, a new 8-bit computer, that would um, was kind of their dream machine of like what it could really do, bringing some, you know, really bringing some performance to the system and letting them kind of. But that 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 experience of being able to when you open a computer, the first things you're going to type is basic, 
Um, that's how you're going to interact with a computer. Um, and so I, the reason it's a flex is because I got one of the first 20 boards um, that they sent out um, because they did, a, they did like a GoFundMe. And I, I was like, yes, here, take all my money. And they said, cool. You gave us enough money, we're going to give you a board. So um, I, I happen to have a Commander X-16 that I've been able to play around with, and it is an absolute blast. Super fun. Very much an old dad project. I love it. Yeah. So, cool. so you can still get those? They are currently, because uh, they produce them themselves, and the next batch is hopefully coming soon. But they, they sold out instantly. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a cool, cool thing. And uh, I mean... There's a bunch of you know folks that are just local hardware guys in in like the Texas uh, the Dallas Texas area, um, and then a particular set of YouTubers that have been involved in kind of designing and putting it together um, that do retro gaming stuff online. A bunch of bunch of guys roughly our age, <laughs> oh, we'll say. Um, I don't I don't know. Yeah, uh, sorry, Mark. Don't start to twitch a little bit there. Who makes it? <laughs> it's my age that makes me twitch. It is made by these folks. There's okay. no like, yeah, there's no like conglomerate company, anything like that. It is, it is a homegrown system, you know, but they, and with its own operating system, they built and its own, you know, cool assembler to use and all sorts of stuff. Um, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool system. All right. Cool. One, one, and it's cool because it's one of those systems, not like today's chips, it's something you can hold in your head, right? Which is which is cool. I dig that. Okay. If our listeners have questions, that's in, and they'd like get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, the best way to do that is to uh, probably just contact me at Microsoft. My uh, email address is dustin.campbell uh, at microsoft.com. Shouldn't be too hard to find. You can find me on GitHub at, at uh, and my profile is Dustin Campbell. So uh, that's probably the, those are probably the easiest ways to to either follow what I'm doing or or get in touch. Send and Dustin no your Richard. Send Dustin your uh, yeah no relation to Richard and send Dustin your Easter egg screenshots. Right, Richard is Welsh Campbell and I am Scottish Campbell. We established that one evening, if I recall, over over steaks. So I remember that part. <laughs> I think I was paying attention to something else when that happened. Sorry. I agree. I agree you were. I was twitching or something. I don't know. <laughs> All, right. All right. If your listeners want to get in touch with the show, they can get me. I am on all the platforms. I am at .NET Superhero. Thanks, Dustin. Thanks, Mark. We'll catch everybody else on the next episode of Adventures in .NET.